None of us struggle with worrying, right? Uh, if you're like me, you certainly do. It's, uh, I think it's a very common human temptation to struggle with worrying. We can't, we can't see what God's going to do. And a lot of times we want to know what God's going to do. We're anxious about uh, the day ahead and what's going to lie uh, before us. Last, not this past Friday night, but the Friday night before that, um, well, Thursday, actually, actually Thursday night before that, Michael had been to soccer practice. We'd come home and we we're, you know, getting ready for the kids to get to bed, school the next morning. And Michael said, uh, Mom, my throat is really hurting. And so as moms do, she got her phone and she uh, became Dr. Mom all of a sudden. And she looks in her throat and in his throat and she comes down the steps and says, David, his throat is extremely inflamed. Now, if it had been a normal weekend, that probably wouldn't have been um, as alarming. But the next day, we were going to have a group of 12 come in from Virginia. We had a grill-out plan for Saturday after Michael's soccer game. And so this was going to change some things. And we knew that strep throat had been going around. So I told Kim, I said, okay, first thing tomorrow morning, check his throat again. And if he's still complaining of a sore throat, let's take him to the doctor immediately to try to jump on this as soon as we can. Thankfully, no fever at that point, but he was uh, certainly not comfortable. So the next morning, still a red throat, still, still problems. So Kim took him to the doctor, and sure enough, he had strep throat. And the doctor said this, you've caught it early enough. If he gets two doses of antibiotic within the next 24 hours, he should be good to go even to play soccer and shouldn't be contagious. And so we were thankful we got the antibiotic as soon as we could, uh, got two doses in his system. Saturday he played, um, and we had the grill out, the team came in, but you know, he's still taking the antibiotic. Now, for probably a week or so, he's seemed 100%, uh, but the doctor said he needs to take 10 days, okay, so 10 doses, 10 days of antibiotics just to make sure that we... Uh, get the whole virus. You've probably had the same thing where you're, you're taking medicine and you start to feel better, but the doctor says, complete it. Finish the whole thing. Don't just stop uh, halfway through. And so we've done that, and he's, he's got a little bit more to take, but uh, thankfully he's getting better. And that's kind of what we see here in Philippians. Philippians, uh, we see Paul challenging the, the Philippian believers to say, you need to replace worry with worship, through your prayer, through your thought life, but that's not enough. We come to verse 9, and it says, he, he tells him, you also need to replace worry with worship through your actions. That this is, the obedient actions can't be separated from your pure thoughts. They're hand in hand, and so it's not just a partial solution. So look with me again in Philippians chapter 4, 9. We see what you have learned and received and heard. Now, some of you are uh, more advanced in your English studies than, than I am. What tense are those, ver are those words in? Learned, received, heard. Past. Okay, I knew, you'd, I knew you'd help me out there. They're past tense. So, first of all, Paul says, listen, it involves building on the past. What you have learned and received and heard. A couple things I want to uh, share with you that I think will encourage you. It certainly has been a huge help to me. First of all, remembering what God has already done helps you to continue to follow him again. So thinking back and remembering what God has already done in your life helps you to continue to follow him 
again. The psalmist, 78.1, you'll see it on the screen. It's, he says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And then in verse 4 of the same psalm there, in Psalm 78, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done, past tense. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why? That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." So the psalmist and Paul and you alike, all of us, need to look back and think, okay, I'm facing a hard time now, whether it's in my health, whether it's finances and a relationship problem, but what can I look back and remember that God has already done in my life to help me to continue to follow him again? And there's some things that that come back to my mind often. I remember Kim and I dated throughout high school, and there was a, there was a season of time where there were some things going on with, with the church and family and, and, and church issues that was really affecting even our relationship. And I wondered, I began to wonder, is this going to work out, or are we going to make it through this difficult time, and are we going to be able to continue dating? And thankfully, we did. I mean, she's here but at the time, I wondered, you know, this, my, my world started to fall apart. I thought, this, I, I thought for sure she was the one that God wanted me to marry, but it seemed as if it was kind of on the rocks, and I didn't know if we were going to make it through that difficult time. Of course, then years later, shortly after we were married, we were finishing college, and I remember looking into my checking account balance, and, and I said, Kim, guess how much money we have? $11. And we had a ton of college debt, but we had $11 to our name. Whew! What do you want to do with $11? Let's go to McDonald's or you can go to Dairy Queen or something. But it wasn't much money. I remember it being a, a kind of a fun time, an exciting time. We went to Second Harvest Food Ministry. In Second Harvest Food Ministry, they actually had pretty good food. Normally, it was damaged, bo- you know, damaged box, or the box was upside down, or or something like that. It was packaged incorrectly, uh, but it was pretty good food and and free. That was the best part about it, right? So eleven dollars doesn't get a whole lot of food. Second Harvest Ministry did. So we would go, and it was probably the first time I think I'd had a DiGiorno's pizza. And so th- these were some blessings that I that I remember. You know, God. Even then, when we only had $11 and thousands and thousands of dollars in college debt, God was faithful and brought us through. I remember thinking back of when a travel agent, we were, I served as a middleman helping a, a missions team come down to Brazil, and I had recommended this travel agent in Brazil, and I had used her in the past. She, she claimed to be a Christian, uh, but long story short, she, she came upon hard times, and instead of being honest, she began to swindle people, and she swindled us $17,000. Okay, that was a lot of money. I had, I had a little bit more money at that time than $11, but I didn't have $17,000 just to throw away. And I remember 
facing that and thinking, okay, I've got to help this group come down. They've taken off school. It's their senior class. Their sponsors have taken off work. This is a few days before they're supposed to travel. All of a sudden, the tickets are gone. They're nowhere to be found. This, this travel agent's coming up with some kind of story. I have to, I feel like I have a responsibility to get this group down. And we, we repurchased the tickets on two credit cards. And I thought, how in the world am I going to pay $17,000 off? But in God's timing and in his way, he replenished all of that and more. And we saw that was not, and in fact, some of that money, we had, we had decided we're going to help you know, with, the, with the church and the land and pay, pay that off in Brazil. And, and then God allowed that to happen. I thought, God, this is your money. I don't, I don't know why you would do this. I don't know why you would allow you know, this to happen. But, and in the end, he showed himself even stronger in his timing and according to his ways. I can remember then years after that, Jessica was, had already been born, Christina was born shortly after we were in Brazil, Audrey was born, and we, we wanted another child. We thought God would have us to have another child. And after a time, he did. And Kim was expecting, and we were excited, and began to think about names, and began to think about you know, the, the, the crib, and all the, the decorations and stuff, and then she had a miscarriage. And again, I, I, even though God had done many things in the past, it was another crisis of, Lord, why? Why did you even allow us to, to expect another child if, if you knew all along that you were going to take the child away? But I remember reading in Romans chapter 8 and, seeing, and thinking about, you know, God who didn't even spare his own son, then how, how much more can we expect that he's going to do good and best for us? And that verse challenged me and it comforted me both, and Kim and I both during that time of wondering and confusion. And we still don't know to this day why God allowed that, yet he brought us through and comforted us in a phenomenal way. When I wonder as I sit across the table or maybe on a sofa in somebody's house or maybe at a coffee shop and I begin to wonder, is there hope for this individual? Is there hope for this marriage? Is there hope for these parents and these children? I begin to think back about, yeah, God's done some phenomenal things. I think back of Wilson and Cynthia that when I first met them, they didn't seem to have any chance to survive in their marriage. But then as they accepted Christ as their Savior, begin to have the joy of the Lord, begin to settle their differences biblically and See them have joy in Christ. And then to know that Wilson is in heaven today. And Cynthia is a child of God. Those things help me to remember, yes, God, who's been faithful, will be faithful again. His word, who has been true in the past, is still true to this day. Secondly, rehearsing what God has done for others encourages you to walk by faith knowing that you serve the same God. Rehearsing what God has done for others encourages you to walk by faith knowing that you serve the same God. Philippians 4, 9. Notice what Paul says. What you have learned, past tense, and received and heard and seen where? In me. 
So he writes from prison. He's not, he's not in a comfy office. He's not sitting in the nice leather office chair that I have in my office. No, he's sitting in prison and he's writing this to the Philippian believers. and says, remember what you've learned and what you've heard and what you received, but also remember what you've seen in me. Think about that. No, that was a powerful message. Paul, Paul could, I mean, just... His experience and where he was was an awesome platform to be able to tell the Philippian believers, you're suffering hardships, you have reason to worry, okay. But don't forget and think back about what you've heard and what you've learned and what you've received, but also look what you've seen in me. Paul, and Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm, I'm perfect and I've got it all down, but Paul had experienced great victory. He had experienced much persecution and sadness and loss, but he had experienced great victory in Jesus Christ. In fact, to the Corinthians, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I hope that each one of us, whether you're in third grade or whether you're a junior in college or whether you're you know, you know, in, a, in your recent, just started your career or middle age or a senior citizen, Whatever phase of life you may be in, I pray that like Paul, we would strive and we would learn and we would seek God's word and his will so that we could tell others, listen, I want to encourage you to be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Think about how God has been faithful to others. You know, think about this even medically. Um, I I've, haven't had to have heart surgery but I looked up a few weeks ago as I was studying and preparing for this message, I looked up who are the top heart surgeons in our nation. And I think the next screen, yeah, go ahead and bring. Okay, this is Dr. Valuvan Givanandam. Say that five times, right? So Dr. Valuvan Givanandam is among the best in our nation from what I could see online. He has performed over 5,000 cardiac surgeries. And over 1,000 heart transplants, even including an artificial heart. So you know what? If I had to have heart surgery and I had the option, this is the man I'd want to go see. I'd say, hey, Dr. Valuvin, I've been reading about you. I would not want to go to a doctor who says, you know, I've studied a lot. I was the top of my class, but I just want to be honest. This is my very first heart surgery. I would I'd look at the, you know, the guy and say, I, I, I'm glad you're at the top of your class. I'm glad you had 4.0 and you know, all this, but I think I'll pass. Maybe try on somebody else. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, but not me. I don't want to be the first one. So as we hear other people's stories and as we interact, and that's one of the, the important things about gathering together and doing life together, even outside of Sundays, is as we see how God is faithful in other people's lives, then that encourages us to know, well, if God was faithful to them in those ways, I serve the same God so he can be faithful to me. That's why it's important to stay in God's word. It's why it's important to read, as you can, missionary biographies and talk to other believers. And it's also, this is also why it's important. Now listen, this is tough. This is also why it's important sometimes for you to allow yourself to be vulnerable and share with others 
difficult things you've been through. Things that your first reaction may be to be shame, you know, to have shame about, to maybe be embarrassed about. But God wants you to experience victory and then get to the point where you can even open up some of those dark corners of your life and say, this is how God got me through. And he can do the same for you. Oh, pastor, but it's so painful. I don't want to rehash those memories. And, but as you, as you do that, remember, God did bring you through and he wants you to, to thrive. He doesn't want you just to survive and kind of limp along through the rest of your life. He wants you to take those difficult experiences and be able to share with others and say, God has been and will be faithful. Cammie, last week, stood behind this very pulpit. I was challenged by her testimony. As she said, you know, my husband left me and as I, I had a son with special needs and the teachers didn't understand him and began to encourage me to put him in an institution, but it involved long nights, involved working and trying to, you know, keep paying the bills, but also helping him through school. And there were many, many times, I'm sure, where Cammie was tempted to quit and to say, is it worth it? Is this even possible? But as she stood here last week and shared, God was faithful. God was faithful. And what a blessing it was to get to know James through the weekend. And then those of you men who were in the men's uh, session last Sunday, and we heard as Pastor Carl read James' testimony of salvation. And seeing him actively serving Christ and actively involved in his local church, God had a purpose God was faithful to Cammie, and he will be faithful to you. Don't forget what he's done for others. This past week, Kim and I had the rare opportunity to spend a few days away. We were at the beach, just the two of us. That's an amazing experience. We, we love our children, but every once in a while, it's amazing. Just you know, We, we kind of laughed as we, as we walked to the beach. We just had a few things that we were carrying. Normally, it's like we were lugging half the house, you know, to the beach and we're trying to set up camp for the whole day and a tent and big coolers and, you know, all the kinds of Frisbees, but we, we didn't have all that. It's like, oh, it's just the two of us. Here we go. We're going to go out to the beach. But as we were at the beach, I, I, I was reminded, and not just because, I promise you, it wasn't just because of the message. I wasn't just thinking, what interesting illustration can I give on Sunday? I, I truly was reminded as the waves kept coming up on the ocean, but they would stop. Then go back. Yeah, that's kind of what they do, Pastor Dave. Well, they did it again, and then would go back and come up and go back. And I was reminded that God's the one who sets those limits. God's the one who, who keeps his ocean doing the same thing. Throughout those, those few days, on several different occasions, Kim would say, hey, David, look out there. You can see the dolphins. And so I, I would look, and sometimes it would take me longer. I, I don't know if I just can't see as well as she can, but she's right there. I'm like, okay, I'm looking. But eventually, I would, I would see the dolphins, and a couple times, it was just as if they were playing. I mean, they were kind of just swimming around, and they'd come up, and almost as if it was on schedule of like, yeah, these, these silly humans are on the beach, so we're going to go, and we're going to kind of swim around. They, they seem to get this enjoyment, you know, of watching us, so we're going to do it again. And I mentioned to Kim, I says, well, they're just... It's so wild to see that they're just out there and they're just doing exactly what God created them to do every day. Every day. 
giving glory to God. These are reasons that we can trust in God. We had beautiful weather while we were there, and as the evening came and as the sun was about to set, people would begin to, to come out where they could see you know, the, the sunset, and they would uh, begin to gather and Sometimes they were still eating their supper. Sometimes they were, you know, they had drinks in their hands and they, they were waiting for the sun to set. I met a, I met a guy, uh, JT, who, interestingly enough, he used to be the uh, mascot for the uh, Harlem Globetrotters back in the 90s. He's lived in the area for 20 plus years. He's, he lives on the street, it appears. But every evening, uh, close to sunset, he would come out to the, to the steps there, and he waited for the sun to set to see it once again, and others would too. And as the sun would go down, and you've seen beautiful sunsets, we have some here in the area, sometimes even here in Ackworth and Kennesaw, but as the sun goes down, you see the fiery red and the orange and the purple and the clouds, and you see all this again, and it's as if God is kind of saying to the audience there on the beach and, and other places, yep, I'm doing it once again. I'm doing it once again. So these things remind us as we think about how has God been faithful to me in the past? How has God been faithful to others in the past? And then in what other areas that we see, can see God's faithfulness just throughout creation to remind us to continue to follow him again? This is building on the past, but I want to see also a doing in the present. Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, then Paul says, practice these things. So it's, it's moving forward. It's a continual action. You know, a doctor practices medicine. A lawyer practices law. A dentist practices dentistry. What do Christians do or should do? We should practice Christianity. We should practice, we should keep doing the things again and again and again and following Christ and seeking after Christ and leading others to do the same. Doing in the present. Moving forward, not just to move forward, not just to gain status, but to move forward for him, for his glory. Keith Holt, as Christina gave a testimony from her time at Redcliffe um, this past summer, she mentioned that Keith Holt, one of the guys there on staff who, who I grew up with as a kid, said, you know, you should be asking yourself not, is it worth it, but is Christ worth it? And I find myself sometimes asking, is it worth it? Whatever it may be, is it worth it? But a good reminder to ask, no, that's, that's not really the perspective I should have. Is Christ worth it? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's an Old Testament prophet, some of you may be familiar with him, others may not, and that's fine, named Elijah. Songs are sung about Elijah. The days of Elijah. 
Elijah was a pretty amazing man, and God did some phenomenal works through Elijah, but there was a time where Elijah, maybe not in these same words, but basically came to a point in his life and said and was living in a, in a time period where, he, where it was very evident he was questioning, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We won't read the whole passage. We just simply don't have the time to do that. But if you want to follow along and kind of jump, jump through the, the text as I kind of summarize it for you, we're at 1 Kings 18 and 19. But at 1 Kings 18, we see a, a dramatic presentation of God's power. There's 450 prophets of Baal. King Ahab is a wicked king. His wife, even worse, Jezebel. And Elijah makes, he he. he he, he calls this showdown. He says, all right, prophets of Baal, come on. You build your altar, you get it ready, and then you call on Baal to, to have fire come down from heaven and, and light up your, your offering. And I'm going to do the same. And, and whatever God does this, may it be clear that this is the true God. Now, about three and a half years prior to that, this is the same Elijah who, who prayed that there would be no rain or dew for three and a half years, and it had happened. I mean, there was this drought and a famine. And this is interesting because Baal was the, the god of fertility. So to not have rain, to not have the, the nourishment for the crops, this was a huge, uh, a very visible way that God was showing, yeah, Baal's not, he's not worthy to be trusted. It's a false god. But in this showdown, the prophets do that. They build their altar. They begin to, in the very, it says in the morning, they begin to call upon their God and, and dance and scream. And they even begin to cut themselves at some point all the way through the evening. But nothing happened. Of course, we're not surprised because Baal is a false god. There's no, nobody named Baal that was even listening. Then Elijah begins to repair the altar that had already been there but was, had not been used. He began to repair the altar and he took 12 stones that represented the, the 12 sons of Jacob, who was called Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 stones that, that represented those 12 tribes and building on the past in a certain way and repairing that altar once again. So he gets the stones and then he puts the wood on top of the altar and then he sacrifices the bull, cuts it up, and has it on top of the altar. But then he says, okay, oh, oh I forgot. And then he digs a trench around. It holds about four gallons of, of water. It could. So then he calls upon those that are near and says, okay, now go get some water, and then pour water onto the, the, the altar here. And they did it. He says, all right, do it again. They went and got more water and poured it on again. It said, okay, do it again. They went and got more water and poured it on again, and it, it drenched the offering and the wood and the stones and, and then filled the trench with water. Some of you remember the story, but others, this may be the first time you're hearing it. It's, it's an amazing story. And as God calls, as, I'm sorry, as Elijah calls upon God, God does send fire down from heaven, but it doesn't just, I mean, it, it totally consumes it so much so that it consumes the, the meat offering, the wood, the stones, and even dries up all the moisture in the trench. So much so that many people around it says that they begin to cry out, you know, that God, he is the true God. The prophets of Baal were, were killed that day, 450 prophets. 
this was a huge success. This was a powerful representation of God's power. But not only that, we see that in, in a few verses later in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah then begins to pray and, and says, there's going to be rain today, and there's not just going to be rain, it's going to pour. And it did. So three and a half years earlier, he prays that the rain stops and there be no rain nor dew. So for three and a half years, there's, there's drought, there's famine as a representation of this is God who's in control. Then after this powerful presentation, fire is not the only thing that comes down from heaven. Now God sends rain. King Ahab gets in his chariot and goes to, to Jezreel. But then it says that the, the power of God was so much on Elijah that he kind of tucked in his clothes and he ran ahead of King Ahab, who was in the chariot. He ran ahead of him and got to Jezreel first. He's a track star. So all of these things, I mean, you, you see, this is like, this is amazing. That's why we sing about Elijah. That's why this is a, he, he was a phenomenal prophet in the Old Testament. Now, perhaps Elijah thought, as this happens, King Ahab and, and Jezebel, they're just going to surrender. They're just going to totally change their ways. And, and the nation is truly going to, as a whole, come back to God. But that didn't happen. As King Ahab tells Jezebel, his wife, all that happened, Jezebel says, um, you know, within 24 hours, Elijah, you will be dead. And those of you who know the story may remember the story. What does Elijah do? What does he do? He runs for his life. He doesn't say, oh, showdown number two, here we go, God. Jezebel said this. No, he runs for his life. And then even after he, he goes to, uh, oh, I, never, I don't want to say, I know it's not Bathsheba, so I want to say the name of the, uh, the, the city, right? Beersheba? Yeah, Beersheba, 100 miles south. So he goes 100 miles away. But even when he gets there, he leaves his servant, and then he goes one additional day into the wilderness. It's like, I'm not far enough. I, I want to get even further away from Jezebel. And he goes one more day into the wilderness. There, God graciously gives him some rest, provides shade, provides food. I don't want to dig too much into those details, but it is interesting. Those are, those are important things for us as humans. Get some rest. Have provision. But in addition to that, Elijah gets to a point, and he already said this actually in the showdown number one and showdown with the prophets. He, he says, I'm the only prophet left. Now he gets to the point, and God says, why are you here? God you know, appears and says, why are you here? And Elijah says, well, because I'm the only one left. And then God says, okay, I want you to go to Mount Horeb, which is just another name for Mount Sinai. So 200 miles further south, uh, he goes. And there on Mount Horeb, we see through the text that God appears and he, he, he kind of does several different things that maybe we would have expected him uh, first to, to show himself. He's, again, very anxious. Is he going to live through this? After God asked him, what are you doing? He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Elijah's saying, God, this is not how this was supposed to end. I mean, yes, yeah, so all this happened, but, but now, I mean, God, they're seeking my, my, to kill me. And everybody else has abandoned. So he goes to Mount Horeb. God sends a great and strong wind, but doesn't say anything in that. He sends an earthquake, but the Lord doesn't say anything in that. After the earthquake, a fire, still no word from the Lord. And then after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah, Elijah heard it, 1 Kings 19 stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said the same answer. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's interesting to me the sequence of what God says next. And if in a little bit, he'll say, actually, Elijah, there's 7,000 people who still haven't bowed to Baal and kissed Baal, the, the image. There's still 7,000. He says that in a little bit. But first, God says to Elijah, he says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abimeholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So Paul has encouraged the Philippians, replace worry with worship in your prayers, in your thoughts, but also in your actions. Elijah's at a point, a very low point in his ministry, where, where Elijah, the amazing prophet, is ready just to die. He doesn't commit suicide, but I, I think if, if, he, if he maybe had given the opportunity, he would have, possibly, but he was so low, it's like, I just, I just want to die. Is it worth it? I think Elijah was thinking. And God says, go. You're not done. I'm not done with you yet. Go and anoint this person and this person. And then when he says anoint Elisha, that in and of itself is a promise of there's going to be someone for you to disciple, to mentor, and he will carry on your ministry, which means... This is, I'm still working. And then when he says, when God reminds him there's 7,000, yet, verse Kings 19, 18 through 21, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he, Elisha, arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So, even amazing prophet like Elijah, 
Even John the Baptist, like we saw last week, who was at a low point in his ministry and was imprisoned and sent someone to ask Jesus, are you truly the Messiah or should we look for another? Even these men who God used greatly came to points where they wondered, is it worth it? You and I, if you haven't been there already, you will. You'll face moments, you may face days and maybe a period of weeks, possibly even months, where you begin to wonder, is it worth it? God says, yes. Keep doing, keep acting, and replace worry with worship, but through your actions. And lastly, looking to the future, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Then looking to the future, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. So first of all, being confident that God wants to use you. God does want to use you. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He's telling the Philippians, continue on. He wants to use you. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, his son in the faith, and what you've heard from me, 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of my witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What Paul said to Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Paul said to Timothy, is the same thing that he wants in, and is saying to us in his word to continue on, be a disciple, but also to be a disciple maker. I want to pause for a minute, okay? And I want, I want you to read with me the purpose statement of our church. Okay, here we go. One Hope Church, oh, no, 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 start again. You ready? Okay, here we go. One Hope Church exists to help people from all cultures in our community follow Christ as Savior and Shepherd, grow in Christ as disciples and disciple makers, and show Christ to others locally and globally for God's glory. That's it. Grow in Christ as disciples and disciple makers. This was the same in the for Elijah, where he says, listen, go and appoint Elisha. He is going to assist you. Your ministry will continue through him. Same for Timothy. What you've learned, what you've heard, what you've seen in me, then entrust that to faithful men who they will teach others also. The same is true for one hope. As you grow, know that every one of you who is a follower of Christ, there is someone that God has placed in your path that he either wants you to introduce them to Christ and talk about the Savior so that they can know uh, the, the Savior, first of all, or encouraged to continue to follow the shepherd and be a disciple maker of doing in the present. Being confident that God wants to use you, but also being confident that God will be with you. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And I'm just going to read a few, verse, a few words from the rest of the verse. And God will be with you. April of 2018, as we were getting ready to, to move out of our house in Brazil, but not, not just out of our house, move out of the country. 
We didn't have much left in the house. We had sold most everything, and we were sleeping on some air mattresses and uh, finishing up some, some last things. And I happened to be up in the, in the, in the bathroom area, and Mary Kate was uh, trying to go to sleep, but she was just anxious about everything. And she said, Dad, obviously she was much younger, but she said, Dad, is, is Vinicius going to go with us? That was one of her little friends. I said, no, honey. Vinicius is not going to move with us. She got very concerned, was worried. And then she says, is God going to go with us? And I said, yes. <laughs> God will go with us. And you and I probably won't, don't voice that, but we think it all the time. God, are you going to be with me? You've called me to do this, God. You want me to serve in this area. God, you've, you've brought this difficult circumstance in my life and you've, you've called me to move forward and continue to obey you and to, yes, replace worry with worship in my thoughts and my prayers, but also to be active. But God, will you be with me? And the answer is yes, every time. Every time. God will be with you. Then we see also being confident that God can give you peace and the God of peace will be with you the God of peace will be with you Isaiah 26 3 says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you Ryan Stevenson is a songwriter some of you may be familiar with a, a song that he wrote called in the eye of the storm To me, it's been a very challenging and encouraging song. He says this, After spending years working as a paramedic, I've been awakened to the truth that the one thing uniting people is the fact that we all experience storms in life. I wanted to write a song that would help to speak hope in the midst of the storms. As we travel across the country, I've been humbled to hear stories of how Eye of the Storm has served as a light in the midst of some dark, circumstances. It is my prayer that God may allow the song to bring encouragement and peace to those who need it most. Ryan didn't have an easy life. He lost his mom when he was young. As he, later as he got married, they had two boys, but then after the birth of those two boys, they faced a miscarriage. He talks of how some of his friends have lost children, some to death and some to addiction. And he's very familiar with some of these storms that life can bring. But he writes this, and some of you may remember the song. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control, and in the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet, between the black skies and my red eyes, I can barely see. When I realize I've been sold out by my friends and my family, I can feel the rain reminding me, you remain in control. When my hopes and dreams are far from me and I'm running out of faith, I see the future I pictured slowly fade away. Doesn't that happen sometimes? God, I didn't think it was supposed to be this way. I I had another idea. I thought it was going to be like this and this, and this was the dream. But then sometimes as we see that, begin to slowly fade away. 
And when the tears of pain and heartache are pouring down my face, I find my peace in Jesus' name. When the test comes in and the doctor says, I've only got a few months left, it's like a bitter pill I'm swallowing. I can barely take a breath. And when addiction steals my baby girl and there's nothing I can do, my only hope is to trust you. I trust you, Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning.